important factor is how well made they are. And obviously a lot of Soviet equipment, um, you know, isn't especially well made and certainly not well maintained. Um, so those are open questions. Um, so, you know, there could be some sort of ballpark rough estimate that could be done. I couldn't answer that question, perhaps CJ, but again, he's U.S. artillery, so I'm not sure how intimately familiar he is with, you know, the Russian systems and how they would compare, obviously, what you're going to get out of the 777, brand new 777, is going to be very different from a D20 or a D30 that's been sitting in a, a warehouse for a very, very long time. Um, but you are right. I don't think that changing out the barrel of a you know artillery gun is something that can be done in the field. If it's been the bore has been worn out heavily, that's something that it has to go back to the factory and get um, refurbished. It's not a, you know a field uh, replacement sort of thing. I mean, we have a mortarman here, so Drake. I know I'm talking about something a little different than you know an 81 or a 120 here, but from you know your compatriots who maybe use slightly heavier equipment do you have any idea in very general terms let's say you're firing you know max charge shells what's the life cycle like on that are we talking in the hundreds in the thousands somewhere between the two uh drake conley are you there by any chance No worries, he might have stepped away. It is also pretty late on the East Coast of the United States or wherever he may be. Um, if there's anybody else who has some commentary on that, love to hear it. I mean, I, I am kind of asking a very specific question that uh, I imagine a lot of the information for that is going to depend, as Colby said, on a variety of factors. And frankly, there's probably information there that I don't really need to be privy to. So I understand that as well. Let's go to Paul DeSantis and then Astro Chick. You requested the mic up here. Um, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to we'd love to have them as well. Hey, language takes uh, your actual comments about the artillery is a good segue into my questions. Um, so, if you recall during the onset of the war, you know CNN and others was you know forecasting that Russia has allocated eight hundred missiles and precision munitions for this operation then that rose to 1300 and i think you just said we're now at 2300 missiles uh launched um so i think one thing's clear um you know western intelligence was far off on i think russian reserves and i'm curious where we think those reserves are for cruise missiles and otherwise and then the other question which is related to you to what you were discussing before um do what sense of like how you know what is a typical s stock supply of 152 millimeter artillery rounds and the Grad MLRS systems. I mean, they have been smashing Ukrainian cities now for two months. I mean, I, the ammo ex expenditure reports on this has got to be astounding. How much longer can they sustain? Are they getting close to running out? I hope. If not, like how, how much longer can they sustain this level of uh, uh, bombardment? I think that's the million dollar question on how long. Um, and I could be wrong here. Uh, I think maybe I'm understanding it's allocated. I also think their last number I saw was 2150, maybe edging closer to 2200 missiles used. It's unclear because sometimes those figures include um, air launch missiles and more, you know, not close air support roles, but things that we've seen in Mariupol. Um, and I would kind of classify those as different than long range cruise missiles. We have, however, demonstrably seen more of Russia's cruise missile supply being used 
in the form of submarine launch missiles, which has been more active over the past few weeks and was not active at all in the first few. We have seen increasingly more air-launched cruise missiles by Russia's heavy bomber fleet that started the better part of four to five weeks ago. And we have nominally seen less Iskander missile systems, which are those ones that you see they drive up, they launch uh, aims up and it fires a missile off. There's a lot of those in Belarus. They still have numbers of those. Um, I believe we've also seen, though it's very difficult to verify, uh, more use of some of their antiquated systems, what's called the Tachka-U. Um, these are ones that the Ukrainians also have in much less capacity than the Russians. But between the increased use of missiles from the back sea feet, um, including some used in very strange ways, as a case study, uh, earlier in the war, um, in Lviv, six missiles hit an airfield nearby and also a, um, I want to say it was an aircraft repair or aircraft manufacturing plant. I forget the specifics. I was entirely wrong on this. I said, okay, I hear the Russian radio net coming up. I hear a bomber that's talking to folks in Moscow, setting a flight path. And then based on the speed of that bomber and everything and the range of these missiles, it all lands up. And this is a good example of why, you know, a lot of data points don't always make it right. It turns out they weren't firing a missile. And this was still when there was considerable Russian forces uh, in Belarus. They weren't just firing an Iskander missile, which had entirely the range to hit this um, and would have been more or less one of the cheaper solutions. And they weren't flying an aircraft to launch a missile from, you know, Russian-controlled airspace or very safe airspace. They instead fired these missiles from the Black Sea Fleet across half of Ukraine to hit this place. They're like the KH-555s or something like that. Very expensive, very long range. And it struck me for a second, I said, why on God's green earth would you fire a missile across half a country if nominally your Iskander missile systems that you can just drive up and fire, you, you should be able to just run them over to the Belarus border and just fire a salvo. And that's what got me thinking that, hey, they're starting to run low on those, or at least they didn't have them in theater or in the region at the time enough to use them because it, it's like – it's, I'm struggling to find a good analogy, but hopefully the example itself carries enough weight there. Um, I originally thought, and I could be wrong, that the, orig- that the amount allocated for the initial shock and awe campaign was set to be somewhere around 300 ballistic missiles. I, th- that could be a different number with things like um, you know, air, you know, more conventional missiles launched by fighters, fighter bombers. But I don't know if it's 800. I could be wrong on that. I'd love to be corrected if I am. But by any indication, they've outstripped that dramatically. Going to artillery, and it kind of feeds into the uh, missiles as well, Russia has Soviet-era stockpiles. And we have seen them reach into those in a number of factors, not only for artillery, but I saw a picture today of uh, tires that still had the USSR stamp marked on them, 30-year-old dry-rotted tires. And with tires is a whole separate discussion, but when you're getting to the point where you're retrofitting vehicles with things like that and you're been handing out Mosin Nagants and you know the latest in 19th century technology to your you know forcibly recruited conscripts on the east then it, it means you've got stockpiles the question is how many of those stockpiles are a real they don't just exist on paper and weren't sold off or dismantled or left to rot after the collapse of the Soviet Union and how many of those are attainable? How many of those are sitting somewhere in Vladivostok and it's going to take you the better part of a month to bring it in? And how many of those are sitting close and can be acquired? 
those are the million dollar questions and I, I can't answer them, unfortunately. And I certainly can't answer how long it takes for the guns to run silent. My suspicion is though they've got decades of artillery shells um, sitting in places and I don't think we've seen those running out anytime soon. The barrels, different question, and that's why I'm a little more focused on that. But I, I would be astonished if Russia ran out of artillery shells really at any point, not even just in the near future. Yeah, I totally agree about the missile situation. The fact that they're using, you know, shipborne and and subs to launch cruise missiles is is absurd. Honestly, um, it makes no sense other than the fact that they're diversifying the depletion of their stockpiles to balance the depletion of. And you know, we can move on from this, but you know, eventually, I'd like to hear about their ability to restock and replenish. I know, quote unquote, sanctions are supposed to impair that ability but i'm not so sure if that's actually actually true although the the vast majority of the world has like sacrificed economic security and self-sufficiency for uh this globalization over the last 20 years so i could see just like the u.s has uh that russia has as well with uh you know microchips and otherwise but um i'm kind of curious to hear about their ability to replenish that at some point thanks all right thank you very much um we do have a question for uh, Patrick Fox from the audience. Uh, specifically, uh, I talked about it a little bit, but I honestly haven't followed this area as much um, regarding possible operations around Odessa. Uh, do you think that there's any capability for a naval landing operation either south of Odessa that would move to, into Moldova or one to the northeast of Odessa that would move towards Mikolaev? Uh, what is that? What would that look like? Is that possible? Uh, Patrick, if you're there, I think this one was more directed to you, sir. No worries. Thank you. Um, well, the Russians have a surface group that's still in the Black Sea. Obviously, the Moscow being taken out, that that was a big blow to them. But they've still got a fairly substantial surface group of frigates and corvettes, mostly. And there's still a significant transport echelon in the region. Could they do it? Probably. Uh, they, they moved a quite a bit of naval infantry into the region prior to the invasion. We've seen some of that get engaged, but not all of it. So in theory, yeah, they could, they could use that. The question is, yeah, anybody can attempt a landing. That's the easy part. Getting ashore, keeping those people supplied, uh, securing a defensible lodgement on the beach, breaking out from it, giving those guys sufficient fire support so that they're not chopped into dog meat. Uh, these are all things that are absolutely critical and the Russians probably can't do. So just to give people an idea, when the Marines first went ashore at Tarawa, they lost 75% of their Amtraks going in on the first wave. That was just the first wave. And the first wave, didn't take the worst casualties because the Japanese were surprised. The second and third waves got almost wiped out. Amphibious landings are one of the toughest operations that any any military can can mount. And the last people who had serious real world experience doing it and got good at it through a whole lot of trial and error and a lot of casualties have are mostly dead now. That's the World War II generation. Those are the people that had had experience. And the Russians weren't the army doing that. The Americans, to a lesser extent, the British and Canadians, 
all had some experience. The Russians executed, I don't think, any amphibious landings. They may have, may have done one. Someone can correct me on this if they know better, but I, I think they may have done one. They may have done none. Never of the battalion level during World War II. Yeah. If I recall correctly, but I think that's correct. Yeah, I, there, there may be, they may have executed one in like the Northern Kurils or something, but essentially... mostly, I think. Oh, that's true, too. But essentially, they, yeah, essentially they have no experience doing this. And now they want to do this. We know the Ukrainians have some long-range fire support around Odessa. They, they shot grad missiles at that naval unit and probably sunk it. We know they have at least reserve formations in the city. So you're gonna, it's going to be an opposed landing because they're going to see them coming. The West is going to give them satellite reconnaissance. They're going to tell them what's going on. So the Ukrainians are going to see it coming. It's going to be an opposed landing. So you have a, you have to have enough fire support to get your people onto the beach. The Russians don't have that because, A, they don't have air superiority. B, if they try to get it, they're going to take huge casualties because we're going to see that. The Ukrainians are going to see that coming, too. And that would be an excuse for the Ukrainians to concentrate their air assets again and go after any type of close air support or uh, bomber formations the Russians might muster to try to support such a move. They don't have the naval firepower to make up the difference because, frankly, nobody does. Um, the U.S. Navy would not be able to provide the amount of gun-armed firepower we did during the Second World War to effectively support an amphibious invasion. Nobody does. Warships aren't built like that anymore. Yeah, you can you can flush your missile your missiles, but that's one and done, and they don't have enough missiles. So fire support's a problem. You probably don't even get off the beach. If you get off the beach, then you have to dig in and hold against counterattack. Well, the Ukrainians going to outnumber you by a hell of a lot, and we've all seen what happens to Russian formations when they're outnumbered a hell of a lot, get pounded, and then attacked. They crumble. Assuming you can hold, you have to resupply these guys. That means ships coming in and out all the time. That means the Ukrainians are going to be shooting at them all the time. This is an amphibious op is technically feasible. But practically, I hope they do it because it'll be a, it'll be a nightmare. It, it'll it'll be the naval version of them dropping in piecemeal airborne battalions during the first couple of weeks of the war. It'll be a slaughter. I, I, I honestly hope they do it. I would love to see that. Um, and then a quick commentary on Russian naval landings, as somebody said. So as I understand it, they've essentially, they don't really have the capability. And please correct me if and when I'm wrong here, Patrick. While they have the capability to do a contested naval landing, they don't really train on it, and they're very ineffective at it. Um, it's different than what we would see in the U.S. Marines, where – even though it's, it would be a hellacious operation, there's at least some protocols. Their naval infantry is more they land on an unoccupied area, they fan out, they try and hold the area down while stuff gets unloaded. They tried a contested naval landing to the southwest of Mikolaev along the coast, and apparently it was just a real boondoggle. Um, and they, this is <laughs> no, it, it like attacked. And this is from a Dale perspective. It's just from the get-go, they got seen because obviously, you know, there's a, there's a couple of satellites pointing at the area, right? And then they went in at low tide, 
which for those who are not as nautical among us, uh, low tide is when you've got further to go before you start hitting the land. And the Ukrainians who were there waiting for them were actually surprised about it because they had the artillery pre-sighted on where it was supposed to be. And it took them a couple minutes as the guys were unloading because they're like, what the hell are you guys doing over there? And uh, once they did get it sighted in, I don't think any of those guys survived more than like a kilometer pushing in. And by this point, the bridge, you know, everything was all mined and it was just a slaughter. Um, and the guys, you know, even the Russians were like, oh, shit, this isn't working. And they got the hell out of there. Another case near Melitopol, they landed on an unoccupied area and they basically just became infantry who landed on the shore and then walked over to the next town. Um, that That's a little more different what we would expect more. Would you rate it as possible, given that the bridge south of Odessa leading to the sort of southern half of Odessa Oblast, if you will, has been struck by no less than three missiles and thus would hamper uh, Ukrainian movement across it with some of the forces in Odessa city proper, that if the Russians were able to land there, and I'm throwing a lot of ifs here, if they were able to land in sufficient quantities, let's say, they took everything they had, and if they were able to, you know, put 5,000 troops ashore, and if they weren't all blown to hell in a handbasket getting there, that they would be able to do anything and push into Moldova, or is that an operation that's dead before it starts? I frankly don't know that they had the sea lift to, to get 5,000 guys ashore at once. But let, let, for the sake of argument and, and a nice little what if, let's assume that they did. We don't know the garrison of Odessa. We shouldn't know. That's good. We know there have significant territorial units in the, in the region. We know they've got those territorials have some significant artillery support. And they and they they could probably cut loose a regular brigade or two to counter this kind of move. They had to. Five thousand guys sounds like a lot. Someone can go look up the population of Odessa. I don't know it off the top of my head. It's a substantial city. You're not going to secure even a fraction of it with 5,000 troops. That's, that's a non-starter. Could you create a defensible lodgment? Yeah, maybe. But what good is that to you? Now you have 5,000 troops who are in a perimeter surrounded by hostile forces who have to defend themselves. You have to supply them. You have to keep them in the fight. And you're going to be expending a whole lot of assets to do it. And that's just to keep them there. Forget breaking out. They'd need massive reinforcement to do that. I think maybe they have some initial success if they're very, very lucky and they don't take serious casualties coming ashore. And then once the Ukrainians in the region get mobilized, they get crushed. Um. Yeah, I mean, given, given the assets on hand, that, that would probably be the most likely scenario from, from what I know about it. Yeah, and then even in the area uh, south of Odessa, so there's a technical term for it, the area in the southern Odessa Oblast that borders Moldova. I don't know it off the top of my head. Looking at the population there a couple of days ago, I want to say it was like 600,000 people before the war. So, and I think 5,000, like you said, it's a very high estimate for sea lift capable troops, especially because we've seen that a number of their naval infantry from the Black Sea Fleet have been deployed as regular leg infantry as of about six weeks ago. And then they got their captain killed, and then they got their uh, colonel killed at the same time, really, trying to push into North Mariupol. And then other Coast Guard battalions got smacked trying to head up towards Mikolaev. So, you know, if they're already onshore, 
And I admittedly, I apologize for kind of using here to try and put this to rest, but we've got a lot of messages about it. Oh, naval landing on Odessa. You know, when's this going to happen? We see that there's reports of ships in the area. I personally rate it as very unlikely um, because it, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me. And I don't believe the Russians are that deluded to think that it would work. But I think Patrick kind of explained a little bit better than I. And if there's anything else I've missed there, sir, please do let me know. I mean, if there's something that, I, I just don't see it being a reasonable possibility at this time, either to Odessa City, certainly, or even to the more rural area to the south of it in some desperate attempt to, I don't know, invade Moldova with Transnistrian troops. I, I see that being a little bit outlandish. Well, the OGRF element is, is particularly curious to me because those are not mechanized units. They're primarily leg infantry. A lot of them are locals who officially have Russian passports. The, these are not combat troops. They're, they're not trained for it. They're they're basically depot guards. On when you say OGRF, you're explaining it for some of the listeners who aren't. As oh, that, that, that's the that's the quote unquote Russian peacekeeping force in Transnistria that's guarding this giant ammo dump. Officially, is there is there a reason for being there? That was left over from the Cold War, and it's about fifteen hundred guys. They they they're basically light infantry from everything I've been able to find out about them. They're They've got low mechanization. They're not rated highly as, as a combat unit. So this notion that they're going to assault out of Transnistria is is so highly questionable, in my opinion. And yeah, I mean, the Black Sea Fleet's been reinforced by naval infantry brigades from as far off as Vladivostok. But let's look at the strategic situation just as as a general matter. Their, their offensive out of Izium is already running out of steam. They're hitting a brick wall. They're taking serious casualties. They don't need another sucking chest wound of manpower. They're going to need those 5,000 guys if they want to actually make any gains in Izium and keep them. I mean, sure, have they done dumb shit before? Yeah, absolutely. Will they do it again? Yep, probably will. But this would be particularly stupid for them to just throw away a a naval infantry uh, force on some kind of Hail Mary toward Odessa that they have to know is going to be outnumbered and destroyed in short order. And especially when, again, they're in a fight that's already not going well for them and they're going to need to reinforce it if they want it to go anywhere. Could they do it? Yeah, sure, they could, but it, it would make absolutely no sense from about six different angles, I guess, is what I'm trying to tell everybody. Thank you. And then uh, Misfit to you. I wonder if you could talk more about, I'm going to take it the other direction of the map, if I might, um, or it can wait. Um, but I'm curious about, we've seen the Ukrainians have pushed up upwards of uh, Stari Saltiva. Forgive me on the pronunciation. We know that bridge, bridge is blown. Um, but even that area right there puts them, uh, from what I've been reading, about 24 kilometers from the, uh, that supply line coming south uh, to the right of that body water river there. Um, and to the north, there seems to be a bridge that is still intact. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the feasibility um, or maybe just hypothetically um, the potential to threaten areas in Belgorod, uh, what might be there to prevent the Ukrainians from going after targets within the borders of Russia, 
uh, that could be of value strategically um, in addition to the supply lines. Um, because it seems if they move much further north, they being the Ukrainians uh, from territory they currently hold north of Kharkiv, um, they're going to be within artillery range um, given some of the current um, shells they've been provided um, and artillery that they've been provided. Um, from what I've read, the M795 shell has a range of 30 to 35 kilometers, and we've seen evidence that they've been provided that, and the more standard 107 shell, 24 kilometers. So they're within striking distance of some of those areas up north. I just wonder, besides, uh, you know, kind of drawing the attention of Russian forces, uh, just from the fact that they're in that area and threatening their supply lines, but going one step beyond that, um, would it make any sense? Would it be feasible uh, for them to go after targets within Belgorod? And, and what targets? What do you think uh, going on in that area? If you don't mind clarifying, when you say go after, what specifically do you mean? Well, that's the thing. I, I don't really have specifics. Uh, I'm just wondering if you know uh, or have any ideas. Like, like, do you mean on land forces engaging across the border? Do you mean conventional artillery? Do you mean airstrikes? Yeah, conventional artillery. Okay. Yeah, conventional artillery. Um, you know, even from where they they currently from territory the Ukrainians currently hold. Um, you know, they're within striking distance of the border, or at least nearby. Um, and so. I'm just curious what you think um, makes sense as far as uh, do they want to head north? Do they want to head north and, and go that direction and go after targets within Belgorod with conventional artillery uh, from distance um, since they're already close to that area in addition to being able to threaten the supply lines? Or do they just maintain a holding pattern there and, and – like you said earlier when you gave your report. Um, and that's, bas that's basically it. I just kind of wanted you to talk more about that area and what do you think is going on and what might happen uh, north of Kharkiv. So as I've seen around Kharkiv and the situation there has been this area is – hey, Astrochick, if you don't mind, I think you might be hot-miking a little bit there. Yeah, um, I'm okay. If, it's okay. I'm sorry. No worries. I wanted um, to make a comment, but then I, I decided to decline. So go go talk. I'm sorry. No worries. Thank you. And, yeah, for anybody else who wants to come up and be a speaker, feel free to click that button in the lower left-hand corner. Come on up. We'll take all callers. It's an open-air radio show, Space Goes Coast to Coast. And uh, when you do get up here, because we do try and maintain some very vague semblance of order, even though it is a little late at night and, frankly, hands aren't popping up, it's a little hard icon in the lower right-hand corner. If you click on that and then raise the hand, then we can get something, especially when we hit a more contentious topic or something more people know about. Um, we can, you know, go in order more or less. Failing that, if you have want to shoot some private messages, um, if you feel a little shy, you don't want to talk, that's cool too. Send them over to uh, Colby, to uh, the Walter Report, to myself if necessary. Um, Master Chick, I think you are still hot micing a little bit, ma'am, um, if you don't mind. But um, beyond that, if you have any other questions, I mean, it doesn't necessarily need to be the topic we're talking about. Uh, something I really like, and I think especially when we have somebody who's very knowledgeable in the room, such as Patrick, lightning rounds. Um, if you just, if you, there's no question that's dumb. 
Um, don't be a prick and we'll answer it. Um, so if you go, hey, why this doesn't make any sense to me, try and answer in 30 seconds or less. Because if you don't know the answer, it doesn't make you stupid. There's probably a dozen other people here who don't know the answer too. doesn't matter if we've answered it once or a thousand times. If you don't know the answer, then it's worth answering again. Regarding your specific question, though, regard on uh, artillery strikes on Belgrade, I think that's unlikely, um, mostly because, to my knowledge, we haven't seen any confirmed Ukrainian artillery strikes on Russian soil. And beyond that, and some of the political consequences of these sort of things, uh, there's still much more territory to the east of Kharkiv, which is within Ukraine proper and which is the active supply lines and which needs to be recaptured at some point that this artillery could be used more effectively on versus, you know, shooting into Belgorod. Okay. There's still a tremendous amount of roads and Russia's got a large land border there. Um, They could start moving things in from Rostov on Don. It doesn't help you. And the political calculations would be pretty high. I think Uh, Patrick, what's your prognosis? Uh, My head's in general, the same, same place. The Ukrainians launched a couple of Tochka U's at, uh, I think, two different targets in Ukraine fairly early on. And that was kind of a big shock to the Russians. But it, they were fairly isolated. If you start sustained bombardment on logistics and supply lines, and <laughs> even worse, if you start putting Ukrainian troops on actual Russian soil, the Russians will go ballistic. And that might not be just a figure of speech. That that genuinely does worry me, and I'm glad to see that the Ukrainians have just stabilized their lines along the border in Opcom North area so far. Because if they actually invade Russia, that's uh, that's something that might uh, that might terrify the Russian high command and Putin enough to start contemplating use of weapons that we haven't seen yet. Um. It, yeah, that that would be that. that has it's a shortcut to escalation in a very bad way. Yeah, that has some very serious implications. So we get yeah. the question a lot here, and I usually pretty you know brusque about it. You know, oh, the use of nuclear weapons in this conflict. Um, but we've kind of touched on it, so I'll do this as quickly as I can. We're going to keep it to three minutes or less. You can set your marks. Russia has explicit cases in which they will use nuclear weapons. It's a policy known as escalate to de-escalate. There are two main cases. One, the use of nuclear weapons on it. Okay, that makes sense. The other, more concerning, in the mass loss of conventional forces and threats to the territorial integrity of the Russian Federation, formerly the Soviet Union, they have the same premise, they would utilize a tactical device. When I say tactical, still the size of the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima or Nagasaki, And the idea would be if they detonate that in a field somewhere, then they can tell the invading army, hey, the next one goes on ahead of the 82nd Airborne. Everybody stop what you're doing. We've demonstrated we have the capability, we have the means, and we have the will. We're not there yet. Invasions into Russian territory that they can't stop would terrify them. And I wouldn't blame them. You're in Russia. You think you're winning and all of a sudden things are blowing up around you and your military cannot stop it. You're probably going to reach for that button. However... There is no indication currently that there is any desire to launch some mass land invasion into Russia. And frankly, if that was done at this point, I think we would see response by conventional forces. So the question becomes, well, we've seen Russia doing horrible things so far. Will they use nukes? I argue very much no. My 
escalation pathway would look something like this. Right now, step one, where we're at, mass indiscriminate use of artillery in areas where Russia controls air supremacy. They're using heavy bombers as well, such as in Mariupol. That's where we are today. The next step is what I would call sort of more incendiary or parachemical weaponry, specifically things like white phosphorus. The U.S. has used white phosphorus in the past. If Russia utilized it, they would have not a good case by any means, but they'd have enough of a case to muddy the waters to, you know, utilize it and not get the same response. They could change out their shells for white phosphorus in Severodonetsk and burn half that city tonight. They could have done that any time in the past two months. So far, they have chosen not to, and I have not seen any confirmed evidence of white phosphorus and other highly incendiary munitions. I understand there's been some use of thermite munitions, um, but I haven't seen that used yet. The next step after that would be widespread use of chemical weapons, because now you're getting more and more political consequences as you go along, right? We haven't seen that either. Frankly, for my uh, requirements, I haven't seen any verifiable use of chemical weaponry by Russian forces, much less extensively. After that, should that not suffice, then maybe we start to look at nuclear devices. But from my perspective, until either you see Zelensky go crazy and decide that they're all invading into Belgorod tomorrow with everything they have, or you see Russian troops gassing entire cities after they burned half of them to the ground, nuclear weapons are so far away from the table that we really don't have to discuss them. Um, so can I, can I, can I, can I interject? Please go ahead. Okay. So what I'm, what I am thinking is that because of the Biden administration and their involvement with Ukraine, um, I feel like th- the whole Zelensky thing is uh, propaganda, and I don't. What do you think... mean by propaganda? If you don't mind, like I... that he's the well, president of Ukraine, or what? Well, with the whole um, Hunter Biden and all of them being involved in right. Ukraine and okay. everything else, we really try and stay out of American domestic politics, especially stuff that's been demonstrably uh, less than true. If you don't mind, we're going to try and keep the situation a little more on the stuff on the ground. Um, okay. I, I, would, I, would, I would respectfully encourage you to maybe consider some other media sources. Um, there, there's a number of, for lack of a better term, disinformation campaigns that have wormed their way into a number of media sources, both those favored uh, on the left and the right in the United States. And because they are salacious stories and sexy news sells, it can propagate a bit. And ultimately, the underlying rationale behind those is minimal to none. So I say this with nothing but love in my heart and respect. I would encourage you to maybe try a couple sources that you wouldn't normally use. You watch Fox News, watch CNN. You like to watch CNN, watch something else. I actually hate Fox News. I don't watch Fox News. I don't actually watch much news anymore because I feel like it's all disinformation, to be honest with you. Um, I'm a libertarian and I believe in the truth and that's where I'm coming from. And so I feel like a lot of this is propaganda. I feel like a lot of this is, you know, just like the, you know, the, the pandemic, it's all just leading us into wrong information and we should be, we should be very, you know, we should be very involved in this. 
Right. Well, the war is obviously not uh, misinformation. There's um, tens of thousands of dead people. Well, um, no, civilians I, oh, believe me, I am not. I am not saying that this is misinformation. I'm just saying that there's a there is a lot of misinformation going on in our country. Um, and so forgive me for if I offended you, but I I believe that we all need to speak the truth. And we need to know our sources, but our sources aren't always real. And, and, you know, coming from both sides, to be honest with you, like, how do you actually know that you're getting the right source? So that's a very good question, um, specifically regarding, you know, how do you validate your news? Because like you said, there is a tremendous amount of disinformation going around. A good methodology is, again, extreme claims require extreme evidence. So when you hear things about, oh, there's a Ukrainian bio lab, um, there's, you know, Ukrainian TB2s getting ready to chemically gas Donbass, those are pretty extreme claims. They require pretty extreme evidence. When you don't see them, then it's easy to say, okay, this isn't accurate. Something that I find that works real well, and this can be dangerous, especially as you get closer to the front, um, try language sources that aren't in English. Um, Twitter is really a terrible, horrific platform, and I hate every day I spend on it, but yeah, it does yeah. give you access I, I, to a oh, lot of oh, different brother, places. Brother, so, I hear you. <laughs> I do. So, I hear you. Yeah. So beyond that, though, um, even in, like what I do, because I am just a guy, right? I don't have secret access to CIA spy satellites or anything like that. Mm-hmm. If there's an area that you're interested in, and specifically looking, you have to get as much information as possible. So maybe you search the name of the town, um, like Zurichny, when I was following that. That was an area where a bunch of Russian army units basically just showed up one night and honestly took a lot of people by surprise because they usually don't move at night and they usually don't move with the amount of armor they had. But I was like, this seems a little crazy. This isn't what we've seen before. Let me look it up. In English, there's a little bit. Telegram channels, which are predominantly going to be in Russian or Ukrainian, a lot more. Um, or on Twitter, if you just take the name of the town and you put it in Google Translate and you change it to one of those two languages and then you search, wow, you've just opened up the Pandora's box. There's a lot more information out there. So yep. I appreciate where, you, where you're coming from. And I think it's a very good point that we should be conscientious of the media we consume and see what's the rationale behind it. However, there are also empirical facts on the ground. And um, so for some of those... And you haven't offended me, ma'am. I have a fairly thick skin, or I'm too stupid no, I, to be offended. No, I'm not looking, two, listen, but, I, yeah. am, I, I am absolutely not looking to offend. I'm looking to just have a good conversation. That's it. Of course, and, and it's fair. It's just that, especially when you start getting into the intersection between domestic politics in the U.S. and allegations about Zelensky and whatnot, the vast majority of those are demonstrably false. And as a result, people can assume malice. I don't think you're malicious. I certainly don't think so. But just, you know, for all of us here, we can see something that seems like a sexy story and we can run with it. And I have been guilty of this in the past. God knows I have. But we have to be able to demonstrate its value and provide some backing evidence to it. And extreme claims require extreme evidence. And with that, I think we may have closed the book a little bit on um, some of disinformation, unless there's any other specific questions you have about the situation on the ground in Ukraine, ma'am. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. I just think um, there's two sides to every story. And um, 
we need to, you know, we need to, can I ask you a question? What, how do you feel about the ministry of truth? I, whole, uh, whole new thing going I on. Okay. So what you're specifically regarding is, um, I don't think it's called the ministry of truth, man. Um, as the assumption of the war took over, the uh, Ukrainian media has been coalesced into one channel for the accurate conveyance of information. I understand why some would feel that feels very 1984-ish. Oh my God, we've got a you know we've got a dictator here, and he's telling everybody thought crimes. It's not the case, especially early war when it looked like Kiev was destined to fall in a matter of hours, if not days. Then the ability to collect, transmit, and regulate information becomes a national security issue. So I have no think, problem with. So that. do you think that the woman who? Uh, uh, Biden appointed to the head of the Ministry of Truth. Is- really, I I don't believe that. By, I don't believe there's a Ministry of Truth in the United States. I um, haven't seen any of those job postings on USA.gov or USA Jobs. Um, if you have more information on that, I'd love to get it. But uh, I really will have to kind of p- politely suggest that we do not discuss American politics in this space because we okay. have not only a bunch of other situations that are frankly a little more outstanding, including the, you know, tens of thousands being um, massacred and genocided and, you know, raped to death in Ukraine, well, which I would rate a little bit more, but also the fact. Absolutely. Yeah, Listen, I, but if I may, know, this, hap- if I this, may. Hap- this, this also in, in, I would really like to move away from this topic if that's all right. Very, you, no, you have no, a lot no, of hands very, up. I agree Please. with you. I agree with you. And respectfully, but this is happening in all countries. Yes, this but this space is specifically focused on Ukraine. If there's okay. another topic, there may be other areas that are better. Um, we're going to have to cycle some folks down. Thank you very much, Astro Chick. It's been okay. very illuminating. Um, and we thank will you. catch you thank on you the flip side. Time. All right. Thank you for yes, your time. Yes, take care now. Thank all right. I don't entirely remember who was the next uh, hand up. I know we've got a lot of them up. Um, you know, mea culpa for all of that. Uh, let's go to Colby first, just uh, Colby, Imperius, Wings, Misfit, uh, Paul D, and then Jingdu. And uh, let's, I understand, you know, where probably a lot of these statements are going to come from. That's fine. This is an open forum. But let's try and politely nudge this back towards Ukraine, if that's okay with everybody. Um, I really do not have the energy nor the desire to discuss U.S. politics at this point in the day. So, but first to you, sir, Colby. Thanks, language. Imperius, go ahead, please. Yeah, uh, that last person identified themselves as a libertarian. As a libertarian, so I wanted to say, tell a little story about a man from Lviv. Uh, a lot of people claim to be libertarians and and throw this man's name around, but it's it's pretty. He has a pretty interesting story because he. He grew up in Lviv, but back then it was named Lemberg, and he wound up serving in uh, the Austrian military in World War One. But he was actually uh, an economist by profession, and he helped lay down a lot of the research and the philosophy behind the underpinnings of what would become sort of the liberal world order that we all enjoy and love today and that has provided us a lot of prosperity. That man's name is Ludwig von Mises. And if you go uh, to Lviv today, you can probably still find his house. His his nameplate is up there. Um, 
actually, let me get you the address. So, you know, if, if you ever want to go there, you can check it out. But the thing that I think is quite topical to Ukraine was uh, the man had a personal crest. And on that crest, he had a Latin motto. Tu nekere malis. Do not yield to evil. That's all. Okay, absolutely. Very, uh, very succinct. Thank you. Let's go to Wings and Rockets and then to Misfit, please. And also, Drake, just because Drake Conley, sir, if you're still there, um, I'm just going to rotate you down because I haven't heard from you in a little bit. We got some, we want to get a little bit of space here for Twitter stability and whatnot. Please feel free to come back anytime, sir. I really do appreciate it. Um, but I'm just going to rotate you down, so don't, you know, fire 120 at my house. Yeah, hi, everyone. Um, just a quick one. Um, just something was hit at sea last night. Uh, I haven't got firms or anything like that. If someone could do me a favor and just DM me um, a Berenum range from a fixed point like Odessa. I'm trying to chase down what it is. There seems to be a um, temporary hazard to navigation in the area that was a ship. Is this the um, flash that was reported on possibly an oil platform? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it's an oil platform, to be honest with you. There is something that looked like it might have been a tanker, which is now a temporary hazard to navigation. So um, I just need a bearing in range, and then I'll try and run it down and see what, what's been hit out there. Um, if it was picked up by things like ferns, it, it was probably quite a big blast. Um, and I'm just interested what it was. All right. So for our listeners here, if you want to you – know, we're looking for something. I believe it was to the southeast of Odessa. Is that white rings? Right rings? You know what I mean. Um, it was to the southeast of Odessa. There were, within the past 24 hours, um, there was some visible – you know, blast explosion of some kind, possibly some smoke, depending on if you have Maxar satellite credits and it was over at the time. If you can find that location, um, even if you're just on Google Maps and you can get a GPS coordinate, please do send that to our good friend Wings over here in PMs. Give him a little thumbs up. Give him a compliment. The man does a tremendous amount of work, especially regarding naval activity, and you should give him a follow. But um, having that information will allow him to better prove or disprove his hypotheses. So if you've really got nothing to do right now, please start looking into that. Do you have a general idea on what time that explosion occurred, sir? No, I, I woke up this morning. My alarm didn't go off, so I've been running around all morning. Um, I think it was – it sounded like it was during the um, the missile barrage yesterday. Um, and then someone reported a very large explosion out at sea, but then it all went quiet. Um, so I'm interested whether it was a platform, um, which which might be of interest. Forte's up at the minute looking. There's a Romanian UAV up, um, which I'm trying to chase down to see what he's doing. He might be doing some anti-submarine stuff. But um, usually, well, as an example, down in the Gulf in 1991, we cleared all the oil, uh, abandoned oil platforms up in the northern Gulf um, because there were stay-behind teams um, of... Iraqi Marines with RPGs, like anti-tank missiles, stuff like that. So it'd be interesting to see if someone's starting to clear the oil platforms up there or whether... Uh, Donnie Donowitz has sent me a uh, GPS location. Donnie, if you don't mind sending that over to Wings and Rockets so he can uh, do some work on that. 
Um, and anybody else, yeah. I mean, I am not – I have some minor skills in OSINT. Um, very few of them apply to geospatial stuff. I have uh, friends who do that, but I am a neophyte. Send that over to Wings and Rockets, and then uh, he can work his magic a little bit more with it than I. But thank you for sending it to me as well. I just I, – I'm staring at an empty patch of sea from a satellite. I have no idea what the hell I'm looking at. Cheers, mate. I'll rotate down because I've got to go do some work. For some reason, they expect me to do it and get paid. It's bizarre. I hate work. It is bizarre. Hey, you know, cheers, brother. You know, Take care of yourself, you limey bastard. Um, love you, but, you know. Anyway, let's go uh, to Misfit and then to Paul D. Thank you. Um, yeah, I sent you what firms I could find on it. I, I would send it to him directly. Um, but he doesn't have DMs open, at least to me. Um, so Ooh, I did send you what I could find. Uh, and I just wanted to clarify, you know, we kind of ran off the deep end with the going into Belgrade scenario. Um, but it is, I mean, I think it's widely, I think we'd all agree that military targets within Russia are fair game. And I think that's been supported by statements um, from Boris Johnson to others. Um, so no one's, I, I just wanted to clarify, we're not saying go haul a bunch of troops into Russia, but strategically striking military targets across the border, i.e. amassed logistics hubs, um, you know, amassed equipment, getting ready to head south into Ukraine. Seems like it would make sense um, if it's feasible to do so strategically makes sense to do so. And that's kind of all, all I was saying, because it does seem like with the newer artillery, they are, um, if not already in range, close to being in range of, of making that a, a reality if they wanted to. Um, so I just wanted to kind of cover that territory and clarify, you know, what I said a little bit too. That's all. Thanks. Thank you. Um, let's go to Paul D, please. Hey, thanks, language. Um, so first, I just wanted to say I think I would encourage everybody on here to do just a little bit of background on, you know, why 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 we fight. You know, there's a documentary on Netflix about you know World War II, why we fight, uh, why we fight for Ukraine is because just go review. Germany, 1937 to about 1941, that that time frame. Do a little bit of research on there. That should clarify things. History doesn't repeat, but it does definitely rhyme. Just want to say that real quick. Um, and uh, my question's for Pat. And Pat, great to see you back on the space, man. It's been a while, I think, at least since uh, our sides have, like, our paths have crossed. Uh, first two to three weeks in the war, um, I was like very, you were like my main coke, my coke cage, as we say, <laughs> for, for how, how to deal with everything. So um, I'm very curious to hear how you're thinking about, I remember your analyses back in the first two weeks of the egregious unpreparedness of the Russian armed forces. How are they performing today in the Donbass, in the east, the north, you know, Kharkiv, et cetera? Any change? How are they adapting? And I think I think that actually opens up what how can they be exploited now if they have adapted? What new exploitations can be made um, with these 
you know, new adaptations they've made. Thanks. Sure, Paul. I appreciate that, by the way. Uh, like any like any other troops who are who are thrown into a combat situation for which they are unprepared and kept there for a long time, the Russians seem to have figured out the general rule of adapt or die. Um, we've started to see them develop at least route of entry good tactics, uh, especially in city fighting, simply because if they don't, they're going to get killed, and they've seen a lot of their buddies get killed. So they're they're starting to at least at the at the tactical level get their feet under them more or less. Um, we haven't seen good battalion size maneuver units in in good combined arms coordination yet. Uh, that's a good thing. We haven't seen good air artillery prep uh, combined arms operation yet. Also a good thing. And the Ukrainians are still fighting hard. This offensive uh, south of Izium appears to be grinding to a halt. Uh, there were no offensive moves yesterday, and I there was I think there was minor skirmishing today. No major offensive push that I, that I've seen. I haven't done my rounds yet, but uh, I haven't seen anything. So if this is if we were talking about this the other night. The Russians may have been bloodied badly enough that they're taking another another operational pause, and if it lasts more than a, more than three or four days, that may indicate they've figured out they need to try something else. The Russian army is still not capable uh, so far of serious breakthrough with strategic implications, and part of that is. Now, most of their most of their combat units have been engaged to some degree. A fair number of them are pretty badly shot up. And now the weather's turned on them. It's starting to rain. The fields, which were confining them to the roads because they were kind of muddy, nobody wanted to go into them, are now soup. And they can't move vehicles through it, which is why this, this latest offensive around Izium has been characterized by a lot of infantry and artillery on both sides. And the Russians have gotten schwacked pretty badly. The Ukraine and conditions like that always favored the defense, simply because it takes a lot of of energy, a lot of coordination to move masses of men through that kind of you know bogish condition and get them to to the enemy in a, in, a, in shape to fight. And you know if you can't coordinate. Or, air and artillery to support them, it, you know, it's a nightmare. And limited armored vehicle use is going to be limited support for them. So if the Ukrainian position seems right now to be to hang on and to let the Russians exhaust themselves, and this is a good, you know, from a, from a weather standpoint, from a, even from a tactical standpoint, now that uh, Operational Command North has been largely freed up, they're probably refitting a lot of those units that were heavily engaged around Kiev and preparing to redeploy them. This gives them time to do it. If the Ukrainians can hang on until we see the the, um, the land dry out as it gets into summer here, or possibly before that, depending on what they think they can manage, and let the Russians basically punch themselves into exhaustion, trying to break through. Uh, they will have set themselves up for a counterattack that 
may prove fairly devastating. Um, and again, the, this this assumes that we don't see another, you know, Opcom North size collapse, which I think we all knew that that front was going to stall. Uh, very few people predicted it was just going to go away and they were going to retreat back to the border within the space of three or four days. The situation is still very fluid. I know we haven't seen a whole lot of movement, but the potential for a fluid front is still there. It really de- we're going to have to watch this day by day, and a lot of it's going to depend on what the Ukrainians do and where they decide to do it. Uh, but the Russians are still not in good shape. I'll I'll just stress that they're they're starting to learn, especially at the tactical level, the platoon, the company, possibly even the battalion level, but institutionally they're still where they were two months ago more or less uh now they're just also panicking and a quick little update um in the town of makivka which is to the northeast of donetsk city and is an area that has long been held by russia since 2014 an oil depot is burning pretty brightly um if you look at firms it's firms um there's it's really great. I actually use it in my real-life job um, for tracking possible fires. It's very accurate in the United States. It's not as necessarily precise overseas. Um, I would encourage you to look at it, though. I think you should, if you just search firms, there should be a world map at the bottom. You can also get some of that data applied to Google Earth Pro and whatnot, which I heartily encourage anybody who's doing mapping here should use. Um, they will often rate these things as likely or unlikely because you can get things like reflections off of water or clouds or particulates in the air or what have you, and it can be inappropriately represented as fire um, or you know, even just industrial exhaust can be interpreted as you know, a high heat signature. This one obviously isn't a, uh, you know, a false positive because something's burning pretty well. We've seen a lot of targeting of Russian oil supplies. Um, especially in Russian-occupied areas, by Ukraine. And this includes Belgorod, this includes Bryansk, this includes areas in the Donetsk region. I would think it's worthwhile to make a deep dive into this, especially as to what that implies for the rest of this war on the Eastern Front, as Russia has been simultaneously targeting a number of Ukraine's oil and gas supplies Um I mean, uh, Patrick, what do you think as these oil supplies get degraded in and around the vicinity of the active front? Does Russia have the capability to bring more to bear? Is this going to cause an operational pause? What's the significance of this? Well, they're doing exactly what I I thought they would. I said so. You don't have to kill every Russian tank. You don't have to destroy every Russian artillery piece. You have to blow up their fuel and ammo. You do that. They're just steel. That's just a big lump of steel in a, speci- in, a, in a specific shape. If it's got no gas, if it's got no, if it's got no ammunition, it can't do much to you. Uh, and the Ukrainians are playing on what has become a well-known Russian problem, which is their absolutely atrocious logistics chain. Uh, we keep hearing reports that they're trying to sort it out, but so far we haven't seen major improvement at least not based on Russian operational patterns. What is this doing to it? I mean, it's not good. It's certainly not. I, I posted a video a couple of days ago of that ammo dump going up from uh, Ukrainian indirect fire. Hopefully that poor cow got out of there. Uh, 
it, it's just not good. It, it's going to it's going to tax Russian supply lines. It's going to constrict their ability to fight. Is it decisive? I mean, if they do enough of it, yeah, certainly. Have they done enough of it? I don't know yet. It, could that be a contributing factor to the the fact that they haven't really been aggressive the past few days since they've begun this renewed campaign against Russian supplies? Yeah, sure could. Might it in, result in more operational pauses where they have to build up and then distribute more supplies between 